Welcome to Trilor Talk. I'm Scott Glovsky, and I'm your host for this podcast where we speak with some of the best trial lawyers in the United States. We simply have great lawyers, tell great stories from cases that had a profound impact on them. So let's get started. I'm very happy to be sitting across the table from Render Freeman, who is phenomenal. I use that word a lot, as all of you know, but it's absolutely true. A wonderful, talented, creative, and just spectacular lawyer who practices out of Duluth, Georgia, although he does cases all over the country, and his focus is medical malpractice. And Render, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, sure. I'm not sure I'm willing to accept all that praise, but it's certainly nice to hear. Thank you. Render, is there a case that had a profound impact on you? Yeah. Yeah. And I think most people that know me know what case it is. Uh, It's the Cindy Martinez case. Tell us the story. So Cindy is um, a remarkable person. She is a young mother in her 30s, but she's at this point in her life a, a retired Marine or former Marine. I always forget how I'm supposed to say it. Um, and, uh, she's married to a, uh, a retired Marine that, uh, is now a police officer and they have two children and they're living the suburban life and trying to raise young David and, um, their little daughter, um, and, um, whose name is escaping me right now, which I, I think is Bianca. So it's been a little while, but, um, so, so one morning Cindy wakes up with a sore shoulder. And she thinks, well, I'm just slept on it funny. And so she goes about her routine and gets the kids off to school and goes to work, comes home, shoulder's still bothering her. Fixes dinner, goes through the Friday evening routine. They watch movies together on the couch with the kids. And she wakes up Saturday and she's again, you know, she's a soldier. She's going to power through and she gets the kids up, takes them down the street to the playground in the neighborhood and Shoulder's still hurting, and now she's starting to feel tired and weak. And she goes home, she gets in bed. And David, her husband's down in the basement doing some guy project with his dad. They decided a window needed to be where a door was, and a door needed to be where a window was. And the kids are running around loose, and they haven't been fed. And so they come down, and they're like, Dad, we need breakfast. We need lunch. And David's like, well, where's your mother? And he goes upstairs, and she's out in the bed, just like sick as a dog. And so he takes care of the kids. Saturday night, she's just still not feeling well, and she's talking about how much her shoulder hurts. And he looks at the shoulder, there's nothing going on with the shoulder. Well, as she sleeps through the night on Saturday evening into Sunday morning, she's going to the bathroom and throwing up and having diarrhea. And when he looks at her shoulder in the morning at like six, there's this red patch on her shoulder blade. And he's like, okay, we're going, we're going to the doctor. And they go to an urgent care facility. They take the kids to the grandparents' house and they go to the urgent care facility. And the doctor in the urgent care facility and the nurse in the urgent care facility don't even bother to take her shirt off to look at her shoulder. She's like eight out of 10 pain. She's got uh, a fever in the morning, which is unusual for adults. Um, She's uh, got a high heart rate. She's septic. And they don't 
figure it out. And they don't even try to figure it out. They just give her medicine for the pain and they give her Zofran for the throwing up and vomiting and they send her home. Well, she's got flesh-eating bacteria. She's got a group A strep in her shoulder muscle that is eating her tissue and that's the source of the pain. And they don't even bother to look at it. And so she goes home and she gets sicker and sicker. The Zofran keeps her from throwing up, but the patch gets bigger. The red patch on her shoulder gets bigger. And David takes her to the emergency room on Monday morning. And eventually, after about 16 or 17 hours, the people at the hospital figure out that she's got flesh-eating bacteria and she's in septic. She's now advanced into septic shock. And she's put on a medication that's called uh, vasopressors, which when your blood pressure is crashing in septic shock, they give you pressors that are kind of like a chemical tourniquet so that you cut off blood flow to your extremities so that blood is prioritized to your heart and to your brain. And as a result, you, your limbs can die if they can't get you off of the pressors quickly enough. Well, too much time had gone by. They had to leave her on the pressors to save her life. And at the end of the day, she had to have both of her legs amputated below the knees and her right arm amputated at the elbow. And she lost almost all the fingers on her hands, but she's got a few of the digits left on her hands and part of her thumb so she can grab things and she can um, do amazing amounts of things with her hands. Um, and she survived. Um, and she's an incredible survival story. So... What happens next? So um, she ends up in the hospital for a month where she's fighting for her life. She's on a ventilator. They eventually transfer her to another hospital to do the amputations. And then they send her to a third hospital that's a burn unit because burn units are highly specialized in infection control. And so she's still on a ventilator. She's still fighting the infection. She's still fighting for her life for another 30 or 45 days. And she finally is able to be extubated and, and um, put into a rehabilitation facility in Atlanta called the Shepherd Spinal Center, which is um, an amazing place where uh, she was fitted with prosthetics and went through rehab and learned how to walk again. And after about, gosh, it was probably over 100 days, she was able to go home to her kids. And... Um, they had hired me. David, her husband, came to see me during the summer and so I was their lawyer from the beginning and was there the day that I got the call that they had, had to do the amputations, um, which was a terrible day. Um, and so we began the process of building the case against the urgent care. Well, tell me more about that day. I mean, you're called in to represent a woman who's about to have her limbs amputated. And I'd handled cases like this before, so I knew that there was a, a period of time where you really didn't know, and you're waiting to see what's gonna, what tissue's going to live and what tissue's going to die. And so we were really hoping and praying that she would not have to have these amputations. And I got uh, a text message. I remember exactly where I was. I know exactly the intersection where I was when um, I got the text message from David that they had had to amputate both of her legs and her right arm. I don't think I knew about the fingers yet on her left hand. And I finished the commute into the office and I kind of bolted by the receptionist and I was going into my office and was going to close the door. And 
my secretary or paralegal assistant, whatever you want to call her, amazing person in my life, Tammy, uh, who takes really good care of me, was in my office, which was unusual. And I had already started to let go of the emotion as I walked in and she picked up on it. And she looked at me like, you know, what? You know, like, what is wrong? And I told her. And we both hugged and we both cried. And um, we kind of got through that and then got back to work. Um, and to this day, Cindy continues to inspire us with how she lives her life and adapts to her new situation. You obviously had a connection with Cindy before this. No, not before any of this. I didn't know her before this. Um, but uh, I had handled other cases, and David started calling around asking people that had um, had similar conditions, and he happened to call a person that I had also represented. And they told him, you have to call Render. And so he did, and we met very early in the process. Um, and so that was my introduction to Cindy, was through David. Um, I met her when she was in the burn unit, and we actually um, were doing a will for her and were preparing for the possibility that she might not live. Um, and um, we went and met with her, and uh, she's still on a ventilator, and it's really awkward and difficult to assess whether she was there intellectually and competently to uh, execute these documents and we talked for a while and I felt like she was she was able to signal to me and communicate with me in writing in a weird way she was able to she'd already started learning how to write with her left hand so that's that's the relationship began with the engagement so what did that feel like I mean obviously you care about her I can see it in your eyes I can hear it in your voice what did that feel like that responsibility it's a lot of pressure and wondering if I was up for it or maybe I need to bring somebody in and associate a lawyer. I'd handled a, a fairly large case along the same lines, also a quadruple amputation from flesh-eating bacteria and septic shock. Um, so I felt like I had the team already together of the experts, so I was gaining confidence, but I was still like, can I do this? Can I put this together? And... Um, so I felt, I felt pressure, but I also felt like confidence at the same time, kind of bouncing back and forth between those two things. So how did you deal with that pressure? We got busy, you know, we, we got uh, the, you have to wait a while because you have to get all the records and the records are voluminous. There's four or 5,000 pages of records in these cases when they're in intensive care for months on end. Um, but we were able to get the records pretty quickly from the urgent care facility because that was a super limited experience. It was like 15 minutes of medicine, you know, drive-through medicine. And so we were able to get that and assess that pretty early. In these cases, there's always this dynamic of causation. Like, well, if something had happened differently, if they had realized it sooner and provided um, different treatment, what difference would the outcome have been? So that's like a totally different battlefront that we have to deal with. And you don't know until you get into the medicine and you start talking to infectious disease doctors and vascular surgeons and intensive care guys. So we just kind of started going through the, what's the next right thing to do? Next right thing is get the medical records and get them to the experts. How did you approach telling the story 
in learning the story? With psychodramatists and with a lot of help. Um, Mary Jo Armitrude was the main person that I relied upon. I'd had an incredible, uh, she cracked me like an egg at grad two in 2016. Um, and while I'm here in 2016, um, Mary Jo is, well, excuse me, when I'm here in 2016, Cindy is, uh, is home and is starting to live her life again. And we're on engaged and we've got experts, but I had a, 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 a amazing experience, um, in the, uh, in the milk barn with Mary Jo. And so she was my latest and favorite, um, of many psychodramatists. So I brought her down to work with Cindy and David in their homes and get them ready to discover the story before their depositions were taken. Tell us about that. So we spent the whole day at the house and we walked through the entire weekend, uh, starting on Friday morning and we were in their bedroom and Cindy and David were in their bed and, um, we, um, you know, reenacted pieces of the entire weekend in order to really fully discover when this happened or that happened and how many times he looked at it and what it looked like at various moments in time. And as a result, um, they really were taken back to that weekend. It was obviously difficult and emotional, but they were taken back to that weekend and reliving it anew just prior, like a couple of weeks prior to their deposition. So they felt very confident and relaxed at their depositions, which was perfect because our, they were our greatest asset in the case, was what great people they were. Through the reenactments, you obviously developed a love for your client. What is it that you were drawn to? Just her strength. I mean, that she... And, you know, you're, you're kind of looking at it from a couple of different perspectives. One, you're in the moment and you're in their home and you're doing the psychodrama and you're amazed by their strength to go back to these moments and relive them. And just incredible that you would have the courage and the trust in us as her lawyers to do this. Um, and so I was inspired by that. I was flattered by that. And I was, you know, inspired encouraged to really continue to work hard for her but then also to be have the privilege of seeing those moments you know when they when they wake up on Monday morning and they're going to go to the ER and this is the last time that they lie in bed together with Cindy's full body with her old body with all of her arms and legs and to freeze that moment and realize that and have them talk about it um you know, I think in a lot of ways I'm a, I'm a frustrated therapist and I figure out ways to moments in our cases when I can help people or bring in people like Mary Jo or Louise or, or Mike Trainer and, and have them, have them help my clients and, and heal some of the situations that need to be healed. And I think that's helpful to the case, but it's more importantly helpful to them. So I feel really privilege that I get to be a part of that. So what happens next in the story? So before we even file the lawsuit, we put together the entire package of all the expert reports, the life care plan, 
the economics of her lost wages, the present cash value of this tremendous life care plan of, you know, $25, $35 million. All the lawyer stuff. Yeah, all the lawyer stuff. All the stuff that, you know, sometimes I feel like there's two stories you have to tell. You have to tell the story to the insurance company so that they are hearing it in their terms. And then you got to figure out and switch gears and tell it to the jury, which is a totally different format. And too many times in my life, I've stuck with the same storytelling technique and it doesn't work with the jury. But so we, we are speaking the insurance company's language and we figure out what the, in Georgia, you can actually find out what the coverage amounts are in advance. And so we figure out that there's a very large piece that is on the hospital. And then there's a, a, a bunch of excess policies above that. And so we, we sort of psychodrama the defense and the insurance carriers and realized that the hospital was probably, the hospital network that, that owned the urgent care was probably scared to death of this case from a PR standpoint. And they probably wanted to get it resolved. So we, we made a big number demand. Let me stop you there. Yeah, sure. How did you psychodrama the insurance company? So we thought about the relationship between the hospital network, the health system, and, the, um, and their insurance carrier. And it was an unusually large self-insured retention that the hospital had. And so we thought, what if we could get them adverse to each other? What if we could get them angry with each other before we even start the case? What if we could get the hospital sort of angry with its carrier for not stepping up to the plate to take care of this problem? And so when we, when we made our opening proposal, which was, you know, crazy high number, um, we said to them, we would be willing to go to confidential pre-suit mediation if you guys will put a certain amount on the table to start. And so we made that amount slightly more than the self-insured retention so that the carrier, the insurance carrier, would have to put some skin in the game to get us to come to mediation. And we learned later that the hospital immediately tendered its, its self-insured retention and was willing to go to mediation. And we'd only put a very small amount that the carrier had to pitch in to get us there. And the carrier wouldn't do it. They refused to do it. And the hospital was furious about that. And so we filed suit. And the case ended up being almost like, you know, not really, but to some extent it started to feel like the hospital was on our side and was frustrated like we were with their carrier that they would let this go to litigation and not resolve it. So what happened? So we litigated the case for a full year, and the um, we one thing I did is that uh, I took a page out of uh, Lloyd Bell and Nelson Tyrone's book, which was that Lloyd had a, a, a really significant case, um, and uh, he there was a consortium piece to the case, a loss of consortium, the spousal claim for loss of marital services, and we have a, a forefather of tort law in Georgia, Tommy Malone, who used to say every good consortium case deserves its own lawyer. And so in that situation, Lloyd brought in Nelson to handle the consortium case so that they had they were like co-counsel in the case. And so I, I did that, and I brought in Lloyd to handle David's consortium case. And so we were double-teaming them like they were kind of double-teaming us, right? I mean, they have the doctor has his lawyer, and then the hospital has his lawyer, but they're really just doing it to double-team us. Um, and so we had that dynamic going, and we filed the litigation, and we... We brought in Mary Jo to get them ready for their depositions. They performed 
beautifully, and I hate using the word perform, but they, they, they showed up and they were themselves at the deposition. At one point, they were going through Cindy's sort of equipment that she needs to get through her daily life, and she told them that she has a manual wheelchair and an electric wheelchair, but she needs help with the manual wheelchair. And they were like, well, why do you need help with the manual wheelchair? And she kind of held up her right arm and she said, well, I would just go in circles. And they start laughing. I mean, they, it's an awkward, tense laugh, but it's like, oh my gosh, this woman can actually have a sense of humor about her situation. And she's that comfortable in this environment to be herself and be relaxed. And I think that was the greatest threat that they realized that they cannot allow a jury to decide this case because of how inspiring, you know, Cindy is and David is as, as people. And where is Render Freeman in this case? What's your connection emotionally? Um, my connection emotionally is that um, I come from a family of doctors. My great-grandfather was the, in the first graduating class from Emory Medical School. My grandfather was a, a small-town doctor. My uncle's a doctor. And I wanted to be a doctor, but I couldn't hack it. I couldn't get the grades in biology. So I have a real reluctance to sue doctors, even though I'm a medical malpractice lawyer. And so that's kind of why I do this olive branch approach at the beginning before we file the case to give them a chance to resolve it. And uh, I, I sort of, it's, I call it the gift of righteous indignation that, that I extend the olive branch and I get nothing in return. And I make it more about the insurance company and fairness and, 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 and fighting for what's right. So I felt completely uh, above any kind of criticism for suing this hospital or health system and this doctor for what had happened to Cindy because we had tried to make peace with them and they were, um, uh, the, the, the carrier that is, was obstinate about the, the case and their exposure. How does that feel when you're dealing with power and in this case, in a lot of cases, an insurance company right. who basically says, you know, to heck with you. Right. Um, it feels, it's, uh, it feels righteous. I mean, that's the gift of righteous indignation is that you need to be corrected. I need to stand up to you. You are not being fair in this situation, and it's my job to bring fairness. Does your fear ever get in the way? Oh, sure, especially with trial work. That, that you know, that to actually go the distance and put it to the jury and trust the jury to decide the case and trust yourself to be able to tell the story correctly um, or effectively in a way that... Um, and then, it, but at the same time, you're in this sort of ego check phase where you're like, hey, you know, this is not about you. This is about Cindy and David. And it's not your job to inspire the jury. It's their job to inspire the jury. And they're inspiring you. I mean, Cindy participated in the Marine Marathon uh, 16 months after she had her amputations, after the event. She bicycled the first 25 miles on a recumbent layback bicycle. And then David met her at the... 25 mile marker and switched out her legs into the spring legs and uh, they, they call them cheetah legs because they're designed after the cheetah and she and David ran the last mile and or what it, whatever it is 1.2 together uh, and so I mean 
and she was a workout fiend, um, great mom, driving the car. She, somebody had donated a handicapped van to her, a dealership gave it to her. After a couple of months, she gave it back. Thank you, but I don't need it. I can just drive with a regular car. All I need is a knob on the steering wheel to grab. And so that was the, the, the sort of emotional battle was trying to realize that it's not about me, that it's about the client. What did he learn from the case? I learned, uh, I learned very much, and that was the first time that I'd ever brought in a psychodramatist to help me prepare the client for the deposition. And I learned that that is a very important task to do, and I've done it several times since. I did it just last week with Louise in another case. Um, but to... to um, and and I, I suppose also... You know, I think the base skill that I have learned from this group is the, the listening skill and, and to really pay attention to our clients and to hear their story and, and to gain their trust by taking the time to hear their story and to spend time in their home and then to bring in a psychodramatist who has this healing power that's separate and apart from the case. Um, and to get through those days together and that bond that it creates and that trust level that it creates between the whole team, the client and the lawyers is just nothing. There's nothing like it anywhere. I'd like you to reverse roles with your client. With Cindy? With Cindy. Okay. And Cindy, what do you want to say to Render? I miss Render. I miss him. And we spent a lot of time together for um, almost a year and a half. And we were, he would come to our house a lot. And Well, he's right here. So tell him. Yeah, so I'm, I miss you. And I am really thankful for you. I mean, you did a great job for us and we're thankful for that. But really more than anything, it's, you know, you were our companion and you walked with us and got us through this whole process that we were really freaked out by and didn't understand. And, and you brought in these people that like helped us. And then you brought Mary Jo back again and you helped with, you know, some relationships, other family relationships that were going to end up being part of the case. And so, you know, I wish there were some reason or, or some excuse for us to, continue to have an ongoing relationship where we needed to see each other and, and just catch up with each other. And I, I know that David goes by your office like and just stops in just to see you because that's part of his patrol. And and he loves that. And he says that you're always there and happy to see him. And if it's not you and you're on the road, then Tammy and Tyler and everybody else is happy to happy to see David. And so, um, yeah, we we uh, we miss you. Now reverse back. Okay. And render respond to Cindy. I miss you too, <laughs> very much. You know your humor, your uh, your um, your insistence on being who you are and not caring about how your body has changed, and just kind of doing the things that are important to you, raising your kids and uh, raising awareness, um, uh, challenging yourself physically. 
uh, to be an inspiration to your children that, you know, you're unstoppable and you want them to be unstoppable. Um, that's, you know, I wish that I had met you earlier in life so that I could have learned from your example and been a better parent. Um, so, uh, and I'll, I will always, I will find an excuse. We will find an excuse um, to get together and maybe it's some sort of fundraiser or thing that I buy a table at or something and you and David will come, but we have got to figure out how to, how to stay in each other's lives. Now, Render, you have a, a very moving story about your middle name. And with the passing of John McCain recently, would you share that story with us? Sure. So um, I'll start with uh, meeting John McCain. I'm in the Atlanta airport about five years ago. And there's a place in the Atlanta airport where there's a switchback in the escalators. And I'm going down an escalator and I see John McCain. And he's got one guy with him, just one guy. I figured he'd have like an entourage or something, but just one guy. And who's probably like some kung fu guy who can kill you with a paperclip. But, um, but um, so I hurry down and I, there's an adjacent escalator that's running right next to Senator McCain's. And I, I get on the adjacent escalator and I scurry down so I can be next to him. And I reach across. And I don't know if this guy's going to like, the bodyguard or whoever he is is going to beat the heck out of me. But I reach across and I say, Senator McCain, my name is Render Creighton Freeman. And Senator McCain gets this huge smile on his face and says, what a great man. What a great man. He's not talking about me. He's talking about the guy I'm named for, who's Captain Render Creighton who was shot down in Vietnam as a naval pilot in 1965, or 66 actually, I think it was February of 66. And before he was shot down, he had taught John McCain how to fly. Um, and he uh, survived the crash. Uh, he broke his shoulder in the crash. And so he could not climb the ladder. This is the story I've always been told. He, he could not climb the ladder up to the uh, evacuation helicopter. So they went back for one of those baskets that he could climb into. And when they came back with the basket, they saw him being led away by the Viet Cong. So they knew he was alive, but they had no other indication that he was alive for over seven years, as I think what the number is. And um, so he was a POW in Vietnam for seven years. He spent three years in solitary confinement. He was in Sun Tay prison. He was in the Hanoi Hilton with McCain. Uh, and he was, there was a large release in, I think, 1972, 73 timeframe, uh, where a lot of the POWs came back at the same time on a, on a commercial airline plane. And uh, there was a big press coverage thing. And Render had gotten married six months before he had gotten shot down. And, and Patsy had stayed faithful and, and loyal and believing that he was alive. And he was. And he came back. And they had a son. And Render stayed in the Navy and was head of naval activities in Rota, Spain, where I went to visit him when I was a teenager. And how did you become named after him? So when I was born in May of 67, he, we had not heard from him. My parents had not heard from him. And my father had grown up with him in LaGrange, Georgia, and they were very close friends. And um, 
Render's mother, Mary Jane Creighton, was a central figure in my, in my father's life, uh, sort of a personality that shaped him. And so to honor Render when I was born, my parents decided to name me for him, and my family name is, in fact, Freeman. So it had this sort of, somehow that didn't dawn on me until about five years ago, that this, there was the poetry of Render Creighton, free man, um, was my name. And it was sort of a, a prayer that, that he would come home, and he did. What a story. We often get requests for advice for young lawyers. What advice do you have for young lawyers out there? I really enjoy working with young lawyers, um, and I do. Um, I have a number of opportunities in my life right now where I work with younger lawyers, and um, I, I would just my advice is to have a insatiable appetite for learning and to open your yourself to all sorts of avenues of learning that there you know and it's not just things that are explicitly for trial i mean for example psychodrama is nothing i mean it was not created for lawyers but it's an incredible tool that we can learn from you know psychology books um that are out there uh i'm a big fan of jonathan Haidt, the author of the righteous mind or the happiness hypothesis and these books are written purely for for people that are interested in psychologists or psychology, not not for lawyers in particular. So to have an insatiable appetite for learning and to pursue that and, and to stay on it and, and to chase what's interesting to you and figure out how to apply it in your cases. What would you like your tombstone to say? My tombstone? Oh, God. oh man. Um... Well, I'm not sure I want a tombstone. Um, uh, I, uh, when my father died, he, he does have a tombstone. He doesn't say anything on it. It just says he's, it just says his name and dates of birth and death, but he's buried with his parents in LaGrange. But he was cremated and gave some of his ashes to each of his children to scatter where they wanted to scatter them. So I think that's what I'll do. Um, and I'm hopeful that some of my ashes, if my children are listening to this at some point and I'm gone, that they will scatter some of my ashes at the uh, Thunderhead Ranch in Dubois and um, maybe a few other special places. Well, thank you so much for spending time with me and sharing with us your wonderful story. I'm uh, privileged to have been asked, Scott, thank you very much for, for doing these because I think they're very helpful. A lot of people including me, really enjoy them. Thank you, brother. All right. Thank you for joining us today for Trial Lawyer Talk. If you like the show, I'd really appreciate it if you could give us a good review on iTunes, and I'd love to get your feedback. You can reach me at www.scottglovsky.com. That's S-C-O-T-T-G-L-O-V-S-K-Y.com. And I'd love to hear your feedback. You can also check out the book that I published called Fighting Health Insurance Denials, A Primer for Lawyers 
that's on Amazon. Uh, I put the book together based on 20 years of suing health insurance companies for denying medical care to people, and it provides a general outline of how to fight health insurance denials. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you in the next episode.